the presence of the Holy Spirit, who, as we read the Word, opens our eyes to understand both what is written there and also how to apply it to our lives today. So bless this time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I want you to notice is the boldness of the prophet Jehu. He's a bold man. You know, it's something to go up before kings. They will threaten. They will tell you enough of that. The the difference between a person who knows the Lord as as a powerful person and a person who doesn't know the Lord is how do they respond when the word of God comes home to them? Think about King David for a moment. King David had tremendous power. He could put people to death. He could do all these things. And King David lived in sin for at least nine months. That ought to comfort us. If a a real believer in the Lord can live in sin for at least nine months, we can understand that when we begin to get cold in our hearts, when we begin to rebel against God in an area, God may impress us, you need to deal with this. What's the one area that most of us have trouble dealing with? Take a guess. It's forgiving other people. What does it mean when you forgive somebody? It means that you make a commitment before God that you will not throw up to them what they did against you. When they ask you to forgive them and you say, I forgive you, (laughs) no matter how much I might want to say, well, I could do it now, but you remember... You're making a commitment not to throw that in their face. You're also making a commitment that when they do something wrong, you're not going to go over, David, did you know, no matter how much you may want to tell somebody else about it, you're making that commitment not to do it. You're making a third commitment. And that third commitment is not to allow that to fester in your mind. What do I mean by fester in your mind? Well, somebody has said you can't help a little bird lighting on your head, but you can keep him from building a nest there. Do you realize that you have power and authority over your own mind? Sometimes thoughts come just because of nature, our sinful natures. Sometimes thoughts come because of the environment in which we find ourselves. And sometimes thoughts come from the supernatural realm. And so we have to pray, and we also have to rebuke thoughts. Have you ever decided to say to the Lord, Lord, I need supernatural help from you to forgive this person and to keep myself from meditating on what they did to me. Forgiving others is a very, very difficult thing to do when you realize it's not confronting them with it again, it's not sharing it with someone else, And it's not allowing it to dwell there. You can't stop obsessive thoughts any other way but by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And so when you have an obsessive thought that you can't get rid of, you need to ask God's supernatural help. And then sometimes you need to do what Jesus did when he confronted the supernatural uh, in his life and in the lives of the people he ministered to. And that is, get behind me, Satan. I command this thought to get out of my mind in the name of Jesus Christ. Sometimes you may have to do that 50 times in one day. That's okay. 
Just any time a thought comes into your mind that you know is not of God, command it to be gone in the authority of Jesus Christ because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to our Lord Jesus Christ. And even our own thoughts and all the minions of hell have to obey that. And so there's the deal. And so it's important we think about King David. King David lived in sin for nine months. We know it was at least nine months because we know that he looked over the wall, he saw the wife of Uriah the Hittite bathing in the courtyard, and instead of turning his eyes away, he was a male, and he did what males do naturally, take another look. And, and that's the nature of the beast. As one of my elders in my former congregation used to say, there's a little dog in every man. So, anyhow, anyhow, King David takes the second look. Once he took the second look, he was hooked. And so what does he do? He's king. Her husband's out fighting battles. And he sends his messengers to go fetch her and bring her to him. And what does he do? He does what he wanted to do. When Satan planted that, that in his mind, he was determined to carry it out. Can you sin like that? Can you and I do something like that? Can we get something in our hearts, and instead of dealing with it before the Lord, we just say, well, who, who's, I, I never will forget. I had a man in my congregation, and remember, I served that church for 40 years, and this man's dead. No, he's not. Anyhow... <laughs> One day he told me, I went to confront him because he was having an affair. And I said to him, I always have to make up a name. So, uh, let's see, Jethro. That's a good name because of Jethro Bodine. I have to make up names, otherwise I'm liable to say somebody's real name, which I would never want to ever do. So I went to see him, and he said, you know, Bob, he said, all these women were coming into my store, and I was looking at them with lust. And, I, and, and Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. He said, to, I said, well, he said to me, he said, Bob, I figured since I was already committing adultery in my mind, I may as well commit adultery with my body. Now, where does thinking like that come from? It comes from the pit of hell. It comes from Satan. That's demonic reasoning. And so, yes, sure, he got involved. And, and it, was a, it, it had a terrible effect, particularly on their, their child. Anyhow, so David, instead of dealing with his wicked thought, gets Bathsheba up there, and uh, they commit adultery. And then she sends him a note. I am with child. I can tell you over the years, I've counseled over a thousand people because I'm free, and I can tell you that sometimes that word is the worst possible word somebody ever got, and that was true for King David. So what does he do? He sends a messenger to General Joab, and he said, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Uriah comes, and uh, David says to him, you know, hey, Uriah, you here? So why don't you go to your house? Here's some food and wine, and here's some things to take there. And, and he says, O king, he said, the armies of Israel are in war. 
and I cannot do this thing. David thinks to himself, Lloyd, like that, I don't want. So then, as Ogden Nash said, candy is dandy, but liquor is quicker. The next day, David gets him drunk, and he figures, you know, alcohol. If alcohol doesn't do anything else, alcohol lowers our inhibitions, and it's a deadening to our consciences. And so he thinks, you know, he's going to go home, and then I can blame this child on him. He didn't. So then David does something amazingly cruel, which is something that illustrates when powerful people order people into battle, they begin to have their own emotions and consciences numbed somewhat. And he sends a message to Joab, and he said, send Uriah into the heat of the hottest battle, and when he's there, withdraw from him. How cruel. And so Uriah is killed in battle. And Bathsheba goes through a mourning ritual. You know, we, we are so adept at using religion and rules and regulations as conscience salve. She goes through a mourning period, and then she becomes David's wife. And then, one day, here comes Nathan the prophet, and he tells David a story. And he tells David a story about a man who was very wealthy and who had all kinds of sheep and goats and everything. And he decided, because he had somebody coming, that he would go over and steal the lamb of a poor man. And that lamb, and this illustrates something of the nature of, of the heart of King David. He said, and that lamb was like a daughter to this man. That lamb slept in his bosom. That is, when that man would go to sleep at night out in the fields tending to flocks, he had one little lamb that would sleep right there next to him, keeping him warm. And he said, the man stole the lamb and he killed it. And David blurted out, such a man is worthy of death. <laughs> you know what happens? When the errors of conviction are landing in you and me, and we duck, we see that fault in other people in a magnified and amplified way. Ask yourself this question. What really annoys you about other people? What do you see in them that you think, man, that guy is, mm. That's going to be a pretty good indication that you are guilty of that same thing in one way or another in a similar fashion, and you're not dealing with it, and so you have an amplified condemnation. Nathan said to him, Thou art the man. And David repented then and there. But what I want to say is, for somebody to be bold like Nathan is an anointing from the Spirit of God to speak truth to power. And it takes boldness. And we see that here in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 19, when Jehoshaphat is confronted by Jehu, the seer. And what is the result? Jehoshaphat demonstrates, I'm going to use the word anachronistically, that he is a Christian. He demonstrates that he's a Christian because he could have said, you better shut up, I'm going to put you to death. Or he could have put him to death. There are kings in Israel and Judah that did that, putting people to death who were outspoken. But what we see here is that Jehoshaphat 
actually does repent. What is repentance? Repentance is, first of all, a change in your mind and thinking. It's also a change in the direction of your life. When you repent, you turn from your sin by an act of your will, having been made willing by God's Spirit. You turn from it. There's no repentance in the person that goes to confession, confesses his or her sin, and then without any intention to do right, just continues on and thinks that, well, I confessed it, I'm clean, it's okay. That's not repentance. Repentance involves a sincere desire before God to turn from its prayer. Oh God, please don't ever let me do this again. Oh God, help me. Give me the grace truly to turn my life around in this area that you've convicted me about. And God will help you. He will. But it's the prayer that seeks the power of God to change the mind, to change the will. And in the course of time, if the mind and the will change, the emotions will follow. And so we notice, how do we know that Jehoshaphat was repentant? Well, it's laid out for us very clearly in verse 4. Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem. He went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and turned them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. Now, you see what he did? This was a king who went out among the people. This was a politician who didn't live with armed guards all around him, protecting him from the people. He went out and met the people. He saw that his job as king was to be a leader, to visit the people, to talk to the people, to plead with the people. Isn't this an amazing picture of a king? This king is an evangelist. Wow! God grant us that we would have politicians who are first and foremost evangelists, who want to share their faith and the right way to approach God with the people. And that's what he does. He goes out, and Beersheba is the extreme southern boundary of Judah. That's the well of the oath. And, uh, and, and, and it's extreme southern Judah going up into the hill country of Ephraim, which is the border of the northern kingdom. And so he's going out, and he's pleading with the people. Notice that he's effective. He turned them back to the Lord. Not only did he turn his own heart, having come back from the death of King Ahab of the northern kingdom, not only did he turn his own heart, but he wanted to make sure that the people turned their hearts to the Lord. Now notice what he did next, verse 5. He appointed judges in the land in each of the fortified cities of Judah. He told them, look at this, verse 6, consider carefully what you do. Because you're not judging for man, but for the Lord who is with you whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of God, fear of the Lord, be upon you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no partiality or bribery, injustice or partiality or bribery. Now holding your hand there on page 700, turn with me if you would to the Gospel of Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And I think about an event that just ended yesterday uh, in Washington, D.C. All of Louisiana's politicians celebrated Mardi Gras in Washington, D.C. And they were there with very, 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 very wealthy people, heads of companies, 
And you think about that. Does that have an impact on a political person? Well, it costs money, Bob, to run for office. Of course it does. But I want you to look at page 1628. And this is Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And in this illustration, which is really about prayer, really illustrates the principle that Jehoshaphat was saying to those judges. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. People become callous, don't they? They become callous. It's easy when your palm is greased for your conscience not to be greased and to be stove up and needing a whole lot of WD-40 to be sprayed on your conscience. In a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. You know, if you're going to really care about people, you've got to, first of all, fear God. And what does it mean to fear God? To fear God means to, to be in awe of Him and to be afraid of the consequences of disobeying Him. That's what it is to fear God. What are the consequences of disobeying God? In this life, if we disobey God, we will experience negative consequences. I am afraid of God in the sense not that I'm afraid I'm going to go to hell. I know that my sins have been forgiven. I know I stand right with God based on the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ and His death for me. But I do know that in this life, God chastens His own. He does chasten our, his own. So notice this man, this judge, did not fear God. And notice that he didn't care about men. What does that mean? Never forget this. There are some wonderful political leaders, locally, statewide, and nationally. But the tendency is what? Is to put on an act about caring for people. I feel your pain. Or... I know just how you feel. And trying to impress people that you care about poor people when you yourself are swimming in cash and have surrounded your house with armed guards so they can't ever come near you. I want to know not what a politician says. I want to know a politician's acts. Show me a political leader who cares about people and I'll show you a political leader who tries to make change so that people are protected from terrible, terrible things. Notice this man neither feared God nor cared about men. And then he says, and there was a widow in that town. He kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. You can just imagine. There it was. You know where it is, where Arkansas and Texas meet, where the courthouse is, the federal courthouse. You know where that is. And you can imagine there's a judge and he has not given uh, this poor lady help. Maybe it's about a child of hers. Maybe it's about somebody seizing her house, using an, a forged document to claim that he owns her property. We don't know what it is, but she's there. And just imagine, there you are, right at the, where the two states converge, and that judge goes to get out of his car, and here she is. Your Honor, leave me alone. Your Honor, please. And then he goes in. And you know, he decides the next day, he decides he, he needs to go across the street and get a cup of that nice coffee at that little place they loan you books. 
And uh, he, go, he goes in there, and lo and behold, there she comes. Your Honor, please leave me alone. And, and three weeks later, he's getting into his car at night, and she says, Your Honor, please, I need help. Help me. And what does he do? He says in, in verse 4, For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, Yet because this woulda keeps bothering me, I'll see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. That's a picture, isn't it? Now that is what Josiah, Jehoshaphat tells these judges. He said, consider carefully uh, what you are about to do because you are not judging for man, but for the Lord who is with you whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. Isn't that a picture? And I'm going to continue this next week. That's the trouble, trying to preach sermons with too short a time. But I want us to let this sink in, because there's more here that, that gives us information about being a good political leader and as a demonstration that King Jehoshaphat was a man who truly repented of his sins when he was confronted with them. So pray for me. My job is to confront you with your sins. How do I do that? Well, it's about opening the Scriptures and trying to apply the Scriptures in a practical way in things that I perceive as I know you. How do I know you so well? Because I know myself. And I know the same things I struggle with, you struggle with. And so trying to bring that finger of Nathan the prophet to David, trying to bring that finger of Jehu the prophet to Jehoshaphat, that's my job. It's to step on your toes. Do I like stepping on toes? Of course not. I like, I like to be liked by people, but I can't make being liked by people an idol. I can't therefore become a people pleaser. I'm not a people pleaser, but I struggle with it. I want to please people. But I can tell you this, in my preaching, and I've been preaching now almost 59 years, in my preaching, I have never been a people pleaser because I'm afraid of God. I'm afraid of God. He charged me when I preached my first sermon in the spring of 1965. He charged me with the responsibility of bringing the word home to people in a true and authentic way. So I've never been a people pleaser when it came to preaching, but in everything else I did. And that's why I ended up with a little trip to an asylum because I wasn't sleeping. I was constantly worrying about how to please this person, how to please that person, how to do this for this person and that for that person. And I ran myself totally ragged and wasn't sleeping. But when it comes to preaching, God forbid that I hold back anything. So if I offend you in a sermon, please know that it's not my intention to hurt your feelings. It's my intention to honor God whom I fear. And to do that, by bringing that word home. So when you've thought about, he's telling me I need to forgive so-and-so. He'd been reading my email. 
No, but God has. It's because I love you, and I want you to be happy in Jesus, as that song said. Trust and obey. That's not how we get to heaven. We get to heaven by Jesus' righteousness and his bleeding death for us, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But if we would be happy in this life, we've got to lay it all on the altar. May God grant it be so for you and for me, in Jesus' name. Lord, bless this word, that as we hear this word and its practical application, Lord, we would pray for ourselves to know our own hearts, because that's the job of a preacher. It is to open the scriptures with practical application so that we see our sins, so that we turn from our sins and embrace you as you offer Christ to us in the Gospels. Grant that it be so for you, for us. And Lord, I pray for my congregation and for anyone who may be watching this on the internet, that they would pray for me, that I would never lose my boldness, that I would never lose being plain of speech and simple. Help, Lord, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our next hymn is number 680, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. My Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt His tender mercy?